HMAS Perth 1 is one of the most loved of all the Royal Australian Navy's vessels. Countless books have been written about this ship, from David Birchall's Bells of Sunda Strait, in which he described his rediscovery of the wreck and his efforts to locate the ship's bells, to Mike Carlton's Cruiser, widely considered to be the definitive biography of HMAS Perth. There's even an entire book devoted to HMAS Perth's mascot, a cat called Red Lead, as well as a compelling exhibition at the Australian National Maritime Museum, Guardians of the Sunda Strait. What is it about this ship that has captured the imagination of so many people? Why do its stories continue to resonate so many decades later, far beyond the communities of survivors and descendants? To explore these questions and to try to understand the significance of Perth, I am joined by John Perryman. John is Director of Strategic and Historical Studies at the Sea Power Centre Australia, based in Canberra, and is responsible for researching and sharing the history of the Royal Australian Navy. John is a passionate advocate of naval history and I can think of no better person to explain to us the events that led to Perth being in the Java Sea and the Sunda Strait in February 1942, along with her eternal consort, USS Houston. Welcome, John, and thank you so much for joining me. Natalie, it's a pleasure to join in and uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing this really exciting part of uh, Royal Australian Navy history with you. Well, as I said, I can think of no better person to introduce us to HMAS Perth 1. And I'd like to begin with, uh, well, it's not really with HMAS Perth at all, is it? Because this ship didn't start out as HMAS Perth. It was originally a British ship of the Royal Navy. So what was its original name and how did it end up being purchased by the Royal Australian Navy? Look, that's absolutely correct. She was originally commissioned in the Royal Navy as HMS Amphion. Uh, She was a modified Leander-class light cruiser and a very modern ship of its time. So as part of the Australian Navy's pre-war build-up, it was factored in that we would need to renew what we had as an ageing fleet. This followed many years in the 1930s, particularly where the fleet had run down. So there were three modified Leander-class cruisers that the British had that were offered to the Australians and HMS Amphion, the ship that would become HMAS Perth, was one of them. Okay, so you've mentioned that HMAS Perth was one of three modified Leander-class cruisers. One of these ships was also quite famous. Can you tell us about HMAS Perth's famous sister ship? Well, she had two sister ships. HMAS Sydney is uh, very, very famous uh, for her war record in World War II and, of course, her loss off the Western Australian coast. Uh, She originally um, was part of the Royal Navy fleet as HMAS Phaeton, and the other sister ship was HMAS Hobart, which was HMAS Apollo. So those three were transferred to the Australian Navy, and all three of those cruisers uh, saw intense service during the Second World War. Of course, because they they were brought into the Royal Australian Navy in 1939, just as war was about to start. Is that right? That's correct. And um, it was a prescient move. Uh, And part of the Royal Australian Navy's build-up, we had a number of ageing cruisers that uh, were no longer fit for purpose. And it was, in fact, it was the crew of HMAS Adelaide that uh, went on board the SS Autolycus to take the voyage from Australia to Britain to pick up HMAS Perth from the UK. Uh, So you've just used a number of acronyms there. And for those people who are not so familiar with the Royal Australian Navy, can you tell us what HMS, HMAS and SS stand for? Of course. Look, they're just really the the designation given to, at those times, His Majesty's Australian ship, Perth. Uh, HMS, obviously, 
his majesty's ship, whatever. Uh, and when the sovereign changes between a king and a queen, it simply goes from his majesty to her majesty. But as uh, Australia is part of the Commonwealth, that was a term that was granted to the Royal Australian Navy for its use way back in 1911. And SS, of course, is steamship, is that right? That's correct. And the distinction there is that that is not a warship. It is, in fact, a, a ship of trade. Okay. So what did HMAS Perth look like? How big was it? Um, what sort of armament did it have? I understand that there was an aircraft on board. She was a very handsome-looking ship, uh, well-equipped, beautiful lines. She had two gun turrets forward mounting uh, two guns, which were six-inch guns, so two in each turret, and a similar arrangement down aft. So altogether she had eight six-inch guns, which uh, was pretty typical for a light cruiser of those times. She was also equipped with uh, secondary armament of eight four-inch guns, and these were, were mounted in the waist of the ship, which is what we refer to as being sort of the middle. Uh, and just beneath the gun deck where those uh, secondary armament guns were mounted were the torpedo mounts. So she had eight 21-inch torpedo tubes in mounts of four. So four in four on the port side in the waist, four in four on the starboard side in the waist. Add to that close-range weapons for anti-aircraft use, and it was a very, very well-armed vessel. They attained a pretty good top speed. They could get up near 30 knots. They were about probably about 6,800 tonnes in displacement. So the whole purpose of cruisers is that they were used for scouting. They had good range, so they could go out ahead of a force. They were well-armed, so if they encountered anything, they could normally at least defend themselves and get shots away and report back to the bigger ships if that was the case. Um, they had a crew, normally a peacetime crew, just about 600-odd, but in wartime that would increase. So at the time of a loss, I think she had about 680 men on board, which actually included a number of civilians who were on board running the canteens on board and members of the Royal Australian Air Force who maintained an amphibious Warrus aircraft. So that aircraft was carried uh, in the middle of the ship and it was basically used for reconnaissance, spotting and um, surveillance. It would be fired from a catapult and then once its mission was completed, the idea was that it would land alongside the ship, be recovered by a crane and hoisted back on board. But that gave her an extra set of eyes and much greater range as far as reconnaissance and picture compilation was concerned. Yeah, and that air cover was particularly important in World War II uh, with the activities that they undertook. It must have been quite something to watch that aircraft taking off and being brought back on board. Absolutely, and, uh, you know, exciting for those on board. I mean, we look back in hindsight and think, you know, oh, look at that, you know, it's a biplane, it's made of canvas and string and plywood and a little bit of aluminium. And the lens that we look under that from a revisionist view is that, you know, how on earth did they do that? But at the time, it was considered to be quite exciting technology and probably likened to drones that are being launched from surface ships today. Okay, you've given us an outline of the ship. And when I think about how big HMAS Perth is, I always like to put it in the context of Olympic-sized swimming pools, which is something that many people are familiar with. So it was more than three times the size uh, of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, is my understanding. That's right. And if, if you look at some of the smaller ships like corvettes and destroyers, corvettes were probably the length of a swimming pool and destroyers were somewhere in between. So each of these class names that we give to ships, you know, refer to a ship for a different purpose. They come in different sizes, with different armaments. But when you get to the light cruisers, you're really starting to get on your way to a ship which is very, very versatile and packs a considerable punch for its uh, displacement and length. 
Okay, so we've got a sense of what HMAS Perth was like now. I understand that Perth enjoyed only a very brief period of peacetime service before World War II broke out. Where did it spend this brief period of peacetime service? Well, once the excitement of um, having the ship commission had passed, she did enjoy a very brief moment of peace. But the highlight of that was arguably the visit to the United States where the crew of Perth uh, represented Australia in New York at the World's Fair. And that was something that was that certainly resonated with the crew. And it would be an enduring memory for many of them during their time later on in captivity because you know, they've gone to New York. It's a vibrant city. It's a city of skyscrapers, of jazz, swing dancing, cinema, the likes of which many of these men had never seen or, or couldn't even conceive here in Australia. So it was very, very brief, and that did prove the highlight. World War II began in Europe on the 1st of September 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. Where was Perth when war broke out, and how did that affect its plans to return to Australia? Well, it derailed them completely. Um, she was originally intended to return to Australia in October 1939, but the declaration of war on the 3rd of September 1939 curtailed that. Instead, it was the early hours of Sunday morning when the crew was at rest that, that news came that hostilities had been commenced. It didn't come as a complete surprise, Natalie, because on the 1st, the ship had been forewarned that uh, they were to be you know, ready themselves. There was this impending sense that it was going to happen. Um, so on the 1st of September, the ship could be found readying itself for war, inspecting ammunition, taking out other protective measures and really getting that ship on a war footing. One of the leading signalmen on board Perth captured the moment that the news came in and it was a very, very perfunctory uh, message that was received in HMAS Perth comprising just two words, total Germany, repeat total Germany, and that was how the ship was broken, the news. And um, leading seaman Roberts, who was a member of Perth Ship's company, recalled that the men had a rather crude awakening with the Reveille, a shrill bosun's pipe and the announcement that we were at war with Germany. Hands went to divisions and prayers during the forenoon. The lower deck was cleared, meaning they were mustered, and we were addressed by the captain, who told us the plain facts and then called for three cheers for Her Majesty the King. Never before have I heard such a rousing response and it can be said that it came from the bottom of their hearts with the will to serve. So there was this real sense in Perth that uh, they were in the mood to take the fight to the enemy. John, thank you for sharing that excerpt of oral history with us. I think it really helps to bring those stories alive of the people who were on board Perth um, when war was declared. So she stayed off the coast of um, Venezuela and patrolled in the, in the Caribbean and the Western Atlantic for some months. How long was it before Perth finally arrived in Australia? Well, it was about six months and she did indeed stay there conducting very, very important maritime security work, escorting ships in the Caribbean and the, the Atlantic. And they continued until March 1940, after which she transited the Panama Canal and then she shaped a course for Sydney. And she didn't arrive in Sydney until the 31st of March. So by that time, Australia had been at war for the best part of six months. So you can imagine here is Australia's newest warship coming into Sydney. They've actually been on war service and uh, their reception was a warm one in Sydney, uh, remembering that their families hadn't seen these men for a considerable period of time. Yes, I can only imagine the celebrations when um, she sailed through Sydney Harbour. 
Oh, of course. And, uh, you know, there's there's photographs that we have in the collection here in the Sea Power Centre of, of the ship entering Sydney. And, and that's evidence, you know, they've created a real stir and uh, naval sea power at that time was, you know, the big thing. And uh, when you see one of these beautiful modern warships come into Port Jackson, people did turn out to welcome them home. One of the defining characteristics of Perth, it seems to me, is that it was uh, a ship that really travelled the world. So you've told us it was uh, made in Portsmouth Naval Dockyard in England. It spent time in New York at the World Fair, spent time in the Caribbean and the Western Atlantic. It spent some of the war in Australia where it was refitted and it conducted patrols and escort work. And then it also went to the Middle East and the Mediterranean and later New Zealand, uh, New Caledonia and New Guinea. So it seems like one of those vessels that really did go everywhere. That is the case, but it wasn't unusual. When these ships came back to Australia, they would be uh, maintained, refitted, and then they would bed themselves down into the evolution of exercising, working up and readying themselves for the next round of the war. And it was during that time that uh, she really did hone her warfighting skills on the Australia station. But she also undertook very, very important work as well, escorting troop ships. In fact, one of them, the famous luxury liner, the uh, RMS Queen Mary, by then converted to a troop ship. That was just one of the vessels that she actually escorted en route to the Middle East, which was a comforting sight for many of the men of the Second Australian Imperial Force to see a modern warship like Perth shepherding them. So by mid-1941, Perth was back in Australia and undergoing an extensive refit. A few things happened during this time. Um, The radar was removed, for one thing, and a new captain assumed command, Captain Heckwaller. What can you tell us about Heckwaller? I think it's really important to just interject there because there was a a real important piece that we've missed out, and that that is Perth's service in the Mediterranean under her captain, Philip Bowyer-Smythe, who during that time, Perth was hotly involved in that contest for control of the sea in the Mediterranean. She took part in the campaign for Greece, for Crete. Uh, She was present at the Battle of Matapan. She then continued to uh, take the fight to the enemy in Syria. And that sort of dovetails in with what you were saying before, Natalie, concerning how well-travelled and how well-regarded this ship was. But you're absolutely right. By the time she came back to Australia, she'd actually suffered her first casualty. She'd uh, taken a bomb hit in the Mediterranean, and that killed a number of her crew. And that really brought a sense of the realities of modern warfare to Perth Ship's company. So when they actually came back to Australia at that time when Captain Waller assumed command. We're talking about a crew that was no longer a stranger to the face of naval battle. And they really did understand the realities of war and particularly the dangers of things like uh, aerial attack. But uh, you're right, Captain Waller, aged 41, he was one of the most highly regarded Australian naval officers and among the first entries of the Australian officers uh, to go through the college. So he was a professional naval person, warfighting officer, and someone who became much loved as a destroyer captain early in his career. He was athletic, he was personal, he had a great sense of humour, and he too saw service in the Mediterranean whilst in command of HMAS Stewart, which at that point was the flotilla leader of the Scrap Iron Flotilla. And uh, it was in, in that time that he earned the nickname Hard Over Heck, in uh, reference to his violent manoeuvring of his vessel when avoiding attack. 
So he'd earned a real good reputation as a fighting captain and his presence on board HMAS Perth was one that was welcomed. I should add that uh, during his time in the Mediterranean, he'd been decorated with a Distinguished Service Order and a bar, which means that he'd won it twice. So his appointment to Perth was indicative that he was being groomed for bigger things and certainly recognition of his ability as a sea captain. Fantastic explanation. And are there calls for Heck to be recognised for his service on HMAS Perth today? His name was put forward a number of years ago in a end-of-war retrospective review for Valor. And at that time, it was felt that um, he had been sufficiently recognised and, and it didn't get up. Another question I have for you is about the crew. We've talked about her service, her important service in the Mediterranean, for example. Did the crew stay with Perth uh, on the whole? What sort of turnover or changeover was there? There's always a percentage of the crew that changes over and there's always a percentage of the crew that is kept there. In Perth's case, um, there was this real affinity with the ship and a large percentage of the crew remained in the ship. There, of course, were some people who went on promotion courses and they went on to other ships and there were people from other ships who replaced them. There was one instance where um, a gentleman I used to know, old Blue Ralston, uh, he'd served in HMA Sydney during the Second World War, gone through all of the campaign in her, was posted from her just before she was lost and his next ship was Perth. And uh, it was in that ship that he was eventually sunk, of course. But, um, you know, you you do see these Australian sailors and Royal Navy sailors for that matter as well, because there were a number of them serving in these ships, moving around from ship to ship. But there was a core element of that that was always preserved. One of the other distinctive things about HMAS Perth 1 was the camouflage. Can you tell us about the different patterns used on Perth over the years? Camouflage is an interesting thing. Um, At those times, uh, radar was in its infancy, so things really did depend on what we would call the Mark I eyeball, rangefinders, binoculars, and those sorts of things to A, spot the enemy, and B, try and judge its distance and speed. So what you could then do is work out a firing solution. And what the Navy had appreciated is that by applying varying patterns of camouflage to ships, you could make them seem larger, or smaller than they actually were. You could paint false bow waves on them to make them look as if they were going faster than they actually were. And all of these things confused visual firing solutions and gave you a little bit of an edge. Not much, but enough to make a difference often. So varying patterns of naval camouflage were painted on these ships. And uh, if one looks back at some of the photos from that time, they got very, very creative. Perth started the war in plain grey, Admiralty Pattern 507C grey, and later on she adopted a camouflage which was named or nicknamed the Sydney Harbour Bridge Two-Tone because it had these arches of varying shades of grey which people thought resembled the appearance of the Harbour Bridge. That was a pattern she carried for a period of time and there was a more angular pattern applied later on. At the time of a loss, uh, there is some speculation that uh, she may have had camouflage on one side or the other I'm not an expert in that area, but there are those people who are. It's absolutely true that she carried a number of differing patterns of camouflage throughout her commission. Towards the end of 1941 and early in 1942, a number of developments contributed to an increasing wartime atmosphere in the Pacific, including in Australia and in what was then the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia. Can you talk us through what was going on in this region at that time? Well, a curtain raiser, for want of a better word, was 
clearly Pearl Harbor that brought the Japanese into the war. And I don't think anyone was really prepared for how rapidly they would expand. So Hong Kong fell, the Philippines fell, Malaya fell, Singapore, all of a sudden they're expanding their southern perimeter. So they, they have this plan to push out to the east and to push down south and establish a perimeter that they would then secure. So the southern perimeter, uh, which is our area of interest, included the Dutch East Indies and Papua New Guinea. And the plan was that if they could secure those, they would have access to oil, Asia's food bowl, and from there they'd be able to mount attacks on Australia with the view of knocking it out of the war and it not being available to be used by the United States. So strategically, that southern perimeter of which the Dutch East Indies was a big part, that was uh, of extreme importance to them uh, for their war plans. Yeah, and, and of course Darwin was bombed on the 19th of February and Singapore um, fell a couple of weeks before that on the 7th of February 1942. So by that February, by that month, there was this growing intensity to the war and on 14th of February 1942, HMAS Perth 1 sailed for Java to join what was called the ABDA Command. What was that? The ABDA Command is simply an acronym for America, British, Dutch and Australian Striking Force. Um, it was hastily cobbled together and it was proved to be a rushed and ill-conceived alliance that history tells us was doomed to failure and that will become apparent later. But if you think of the ABDA force as a striking force comprising some American ships, British ships, Dutch ships and HMAS Perth and a number of others, that's pretty well it. So on the 27th of February, Perth is in, in this part of the world and it was involved in one of the most famous naval battles of World War II the Battle of the Java Sea, in which the ABDA command was soundly defeated by the Japanese Imperial Naval Forces. On paper, these two forces, the Japanese Imperial Forces and the ABDA command, seemed evenly matched in terms of firepower, but the reality on the water was quite different, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, I don't know whether it was one of the most famous. Um, it was certainly a naval disaster from the Allies' point of view. But um, this is where we explore the value of um, alliances and the need to understand common operating procedures. The lessons learned from episodes like this are why we, we have big exercises today like the Rim of the Pacific series where we have navies operating and understanding common manoeuvring, common communications, command and control and really exercising and working through that doctrine because in the Battle of the Java Sea it was a breakdown of these that contributed to the ABDA forces defeat. Now if you balance that and let's just have a look. So you've got the ABDA force, they all come together, they use different signalling arrangements, they have different manoeuvring arrangements, they speak different languages. So there was an obstacle to be overcome from the outset. Yes, there are certain rules that um, in manoeuvring and, and war fighting which are, are just there, but to really have had the luxury of time to exercise that and refine those, they didn't have that. So the striking force was at a disadvantage from the outset. Conversely, the enemy is the Japanese and just the Japanese. And there is no language barriers. There is a common operating procedure. They're well-trained, they're well-exercised. And of course, that gave them an absolute edge. They also made really, really good use of naval air assets. Uh, I mentioned with HMAS Perth that she carried an aircraft which she used for reconnaissance. Well, the Japanese, most of their ships did as well. And they demonstrated throughout the war, not just in this action, but in many other actions as well, the utility of ship-launched 
float plane aircraft for reconnaissance. And these were to play a, a pretty important part in the Battle of the Java Sea. Uh, when nightfall fell, all of the uh, alterations, of course, by the remaining ships were backlit when these aircraft dropped flares. Uh, so every, every time that they manoeuvred to gain an advantage or, or escape, these aircraft illuminated them. So they were very, very good at that as well. Um, the Dutch Admiral Dorman, who was in command of ABDA, uh, he was certainly not short of courage or conviction in defending the Dutch East Indies, but he lacked war experience. Um, arguably, he was nowhere near as experienced as somebody like Waller uh, or indeed some of the British officers in command of ships such as Exeter. He was destined to die at his post when his flagship, the De Reuter, was sunk by enemy long lance torpedoes. In the Battle of the Java Sea, it was a defeat for the Brits, uh, for the Allies. Six ships were sunk and approximately 2,300 naval personnel died. And what was the significance of this disaster, this naval disaster? Well, it certainly enabled the Japanese to begin um, securing the southern perimeter that I referred to earlier. And it, as I say, for the Dutch, it was a defeat of long-lasting um, second and third order effects. The Dutch were pretty well eradicated from Asian waters and the Netherlands would never reclaim full control of the colony that it once had. And the Japanese were pretty well gifted control of one of the most important food producing regions, which was Java. And uh, they also controlled the fourth largest oil producing area in the world in 1940. So they had the perfect platform now from which to mount further operations. Perth was just one of two of the larger Allied ships to survive this Battle of the Java Sea, the other being USS Houston. And they were lucky to have survived this battle, but their luck didn't last. They went to Tanjung Priok in Jakarta to get more fuel and ammunition that almost run out. And apparently their cat, Red Lead, who I referred to earlier, tried to leave the ship. And this was widely interpreted as a bad omen. Perth and Houston were not even able to complete their refuelling before receiving orders to head west through the Sunda Strait to Chilichap on the south coast of Java. Can you talk us through Perth and Houston's movements on the night of the 28th of February 1942? Of course. The arrival in um, Tanjung Priok was disappointing for, for the ships. There wasn't the fuel. There wasn't the ammunition. There was a little bit of four-inch ammunition that Perth was able to replenish some of her secondary armament with, no six-inch ammunition. The crews were tired, they were exhausted. These ships had been in a naval battle which had pretty well left their internals in a state of absolute chaos. The concussion from the guns firing alone had, had pretty well destroyed anything that uh, wasn't bolted down. The crew had been closed up at action stations for you know, an exceptionally long period of time, many, many hours, in excess of about 10 to 12 hours from memory. And you know their main priority was to basically collapse on the deck get some rest and try and get something to eat, let alone refuel. They managed to take on a little bit of fuel, uh, a little bit of four-inch ammunition, but soon orders were received for Perth and Houston to leave port in company with the Dutch ship Evertsen. She didn't end up joining them in the end because she had conflicting orders, but um, they then headed out and tried to break out into the Sunda Strait with the intention of um, passing through that to get to Shield the chap down south. So think of that as this is their opportunity to leave there, break out and regroup to fight another day. Now, at that time, the Sunda Strait wasn't believed to be under threat of enemy naval forces, but this proved not to be the case. So to paint the scene, Perth and Houston are leaving port. Uh, the Dutch ship remains behind. Perth takes the lead with Houston stationed about a 1,000 yards astern. So that's half a nautical mile. 
This is important because it's close enough for visual signaling for them to pass orders and actually to observe any manoeuvring. So in the absence of any signals to alter course, you would follow the column leader and take necessary avoiding action as well. Shortly after they sailed, Perth was to receive intelligence that there was transports escorted by a couple of cruisers and a number of destroyers sighted 50 nautical miles east of Batavia. Now, the assessment at the time was that the enemy force would probably be unlikely to interfere with their breakout, but um, that proved not to be the case. So if you picture this, Perth has the lead, Houston is astern, night has fallen, they're proceeding at about 25 knots, which is a pretty good clip, and their intent is to get through the strait and then regroup. Okay, so they think that the coast is clear, they've received intelligence that there are Japanese forces in the area but they're in such a hurry, making such an effort to get to safety that they proceed past Bunton Bay. And then what happens? Right. Well, this is the situation now where it all seems to come to a head. So from available records, it appears that Perth was first sighted by the, possibly first sighted by the Japanese cruiser Fubuki, which was on patrol northeast of Bunton Bay, covering a landing force which had already made it into the bay and had proceedings well and truly underway. Um, that happened some time before the Japanese were sighted themselves. And it was about 11 o'clock at night that a lookout in Perth sighted vessels about five miles off St. Nicholas Point. Um, they issued a challenge. What that means is they used a signal light at night time because they did assume that it might have been an Australian corvette that they had knowledge of had been acting as a sort of a watchdog in the Sunda Strait. So they challenged this vessel visually it didn't respond with the appropriate channel and then turned away. And it was at that point that they realised that it was probably an enemy destroyer. And indeed, that's what um, transpired. Not long after that, other destroyers were sighted to the north. And at that point, the Battle of the Sunda Strait begins. Um, to begin with, the fire was coordinated and directed, meaning that they would concentrate their guns using their fire control uh, systems and uh, transmitting stations, director control towers, all of this, uh, the components that made up gunnery uh, of those times to really identify the target that was the greatest threat and concentrate fire on that. It soon became apparent that this was no small force and that was at the point where Captain Waller ordered independent fire, meaning that the four main turrets in HMAS Perth, each of which had two six-inch guns, and the secondary armament, the four-inch guns, could basically select their own targets. And that's what they did. Remembering that um, Perth was running short of six-inch ammunition and the gunnery officer was actually next to Waller on the bridge, virtually counting the rounds down as they fired them. Wasn't quite the case with four-inch ammunition, but um, they were short too in, in, in very short order. You shared with us earlier Captain Heck Waller's nickname, Hard Over Heck, and he is remembered as a hero for the complicated manoeuvres that he employed in his attempts to evade the Japanese in Bunton Bay. But ultimately, Perth was hit by Japanese torpedoes and sank in the early hours of the 1st of March, followed shortly after by USS Houston. What were its final minutes like? Oh, for Perth, it was, from all of the accounts of the, those who survived, it, it, was, it was dreadful. Um, she received a first hit at about 26 past 11 at night, so getting close to midnight. Her second, you know, not long after that, and third, not long after that. By that time, she was reduced to firing practice rounds. 
many members of the ship's company had um, had been injured uh, from gunfire, from shrapnel. The engine room and the boiler rooms had taken hit. The screams of of those trapped in those compartments with superheated steam and fire could be heard by other members of the ship's company. The medical parties and damage controls teams by that time had dispersed throughout the ship and were fighting a losing battle both to save life and to extinguish the fires and counter flood. The death knell came for Perth when she took her first torpedo hit, at which point Captain Waller had ordered the ship to increase speed with Houston following up behind with a view to try and you know extract themselves from that situation. And when that first torpedo hit came, an eyewitness remarked that you know Waller was heard to exclaim, well, that's torn it. Um, a very understated fact given the circumstances. So um, it wasn't long after that um, she took a first uh, torpedo hit just after midnight and then others followed in quick succession, after which time the captain gave the order to stand by to abandon ship and then later on followed that up with the order to abandon ship. The last person to see um, Waller alive was one of the officers on the bridge, uh, Lieutenant Gay, who saw him uh, looking forlornly over the front of the bridge at the six-inch guns, and he turned around and basically ordered the young officer from the bridge, saying that there was nothing more that could be done. He then uh, called down to his chief action quartermaster, Ray Parkin, that uh, he was to set the telegraphs to leave the telegraphs with the engines turning ahead and to get out of there himself. But um, Captain Waller went down with the ship and uh, is remembered heroically for that. How many uh, men were on board when Perth sank and how many of them survived the sinking? At the time of um, the, the Battle of Sunda Strait, there were 681 souls on board Perth, comprising members of the Royal Australian Navy, Royal Navy, Royal Australian Air Force uh, and the civilian canteen personnel as well. Of those, um, 353 men were lost with the ship uh, or in the waters of Sunda Strait immediately following the order to abandon ship. 324 were later taken prisoner by the Japanese and used as slave labour on the Thai Burma Railway. And of those, only 280 men returned home at the end of the war, uh, where many of them battled their own demons for the decades that followed. So as a Navy man yourself, how can we think about the final resting place of, of these 353 men? I think most sailors uh, understand that a warship has no permanent marker. The tomb for those men is in fact the ship. Some comfort is taken uh, when a ship sinks, if any can be taken at all, is that they're still there in the company of their shipmates as a ship's company. Uh, some ships are lost with all hands. HMO Sydney is a good case in point where that's the case. Uh, for those who were lost in Perth, the ship for many years was considered, while not recognised as an official war grave, it was recognised as their tomb, and as such, great reverence uh, was held for that. Subsequent uh, ships to be named HMAS Perth that transited the Sunda Strait, and other Royal Australian Navy warships for that matter, would often stop over the position that Perth was reportedly sunk and hold a short service and throw a wreath over the side. So this is something that was quite a visceral experience when, when you've had that experience. And, and I've been one who has been fortunate to stop over the wreck of Perth and see that uh, happen. Uh, the exploits of the ship and her brave ship's company, and particularly her captain, are well known. 
they are imbued into recruits when they join the Australian Navy. And I think that that legacy of service is continued on in ships that carry the name forward. So in HMAS Perth case, she was the first ship to carry the name HMAS Perth. That certainly resonated with the people of Western Australia and Australia more broadly. The second ship to carry the name saw service in Vietnam. Uh, she was a guided missile destroyer. And the current HMAS Perth is an Anzac-class frigate, which has seen extensive service uh, conducting maritime security operations in and around the world. And within those ships, it's taught uh, of what has gone before, and that does resonate with those crews. It's something that's held uh, in great pride and esteem. How long was it before news about what had happened to HMAS Perth made it back to Australia? Well, the first real notice came from the Japanese propaganda uh, broadcast saying that there'd been these naval battles in and around Java and suggested that an Australian cruiser had in fact been sunk. Now, they weren't immediately going to accept that as as proof, um, but following a a number of efforts to uh, ordering Perth to break wireless telegraphy um, silence, which was the, the means of communicating with ships in those days by Morse code and getting no reply, by about the 7th, the Naval Board concluded that uh, Perth had in fact been sunk. Uh, and by the 13th of March 1942, that was when these dreaded pink telegrams began to be dispersed around Australia and be uh, received by the next of kin, basically saying that um, your loved one has been feared, lost in action. Uh, of course, many of them went into captivity. And later on, there was uh, four prisoners of war from uh, HMAS Perth who were sunk in a uh, Japanese ship, which was uh, ferrying them elsewhere. Uh, it was sunk by an American submarine, and those four men were picked up in September 1944. They were repatriated to Australia, and they were the first people to actually provide a accurate or more accurate account of the last hours of both Perth and Houston uh, in the Battle of Sunda Strait. I've had the privilege of speaking to one of those men, shipwrecked twice, and his name is Frank McGovern, and he says that uh, many people assume that he's unlucky to have been shipwrecked twice, but he considers himself lucky to have survived both of them, which is quite a remarkable perspective. Perth sank in 1942, which is almost 80 years ago at the time we're recording this. Why do you think Perth's story continues to resonate so many years later? I think first and foremost because the crew showed exceptional fighting spirit. This was a crew that, as I said earlier, they, they, they were no strangers to war. While the ABDA Netherlands East Indies campaign was unsuccessful, that doesn't mean that it wasn't of high intensity, of long hours on watch. These men were at their um, you know, wit's end and uh, almost at the end of their tether following the Battle of the Java Sea. They got no or little respite between that and the effort to break out through the Sunda Strait. And at that time, these men were desperately serving and fighting to save the ship and, of course, their own lives. The rate of effort that they put into that, the discipline that they showed, uh, the fact that uh, Perth did not surrender. She went down with the, the ensign flying and, uh, and those men literally went down fighting. Uh, the fact that they went into the hands of the Japanese as prisoners of war, the Perth men took absolute pride that they had never surrendered. So the way that they fought the ship, uh, the way that they banded together and supported one another throughout years of captivity, no Australian sailor died alone and very few Australian prisoners of war died alone. Um, 
The same can't be said for uh, servicemen of other countries. There was this mateship, there was this bond, and the bond of a ship's company is something that uh, is quite unique. So all these years later, the story is well known. There's been great disappointment in recent years, of course, to learn that the wreck of Perth has been interfered with to the point that a large percentage of it has been illegally salvaged. Um, that resonated all these years later across Australia and particularly in the naval veteran community. So that's the sort of esteem that this vessel is held in. We know that uh, Heck Waller had a submarine named in his honour. Uh, HMAS Waller is one of the Collins-class submarines named in his honour. There's a wonderful memorial in the town from which he comes, Benalla in Victoria. So this is something which has been kept alive by the relatives of those who've served, subsequent ships' companies, and of course, the Perth Association, which at one time had members from all three ships to be named Perth as members. John, you have been so generous in sharing with us HMAS Perth 1's history and really outlining for us the significance of this vessel at the time and still today. And I'd just like to recommend to anybody who's interested in learning more about the history of HMAS Perth, the really excellent resources that you've put together, John, through the Sea Power Centre Australia website. John, thank you so much. You're most welcome. It's been uh, my privilege to join you for this podcast.